Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 187, Marathon Man with Bill Rogers. Hi, I'm Nikki. You all know how much we love Boston history, but you may not know that the Boston Marathon is one of my other loves, which makes Patriots Day pretty much my favorite day of the year. Just a few days before the Boston Athletic Association announced that the 2020 marathon would be canceled, we had the opportunity to chat with Bill Rogers, four-time winner of the Boston Marathon, about his historic runs and some of the lore and legend that surrounds the race. But before we talk with Bill, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a BPL Baxter Lecture with Francis J. Bremer, titled... The Unappreciated Role of Women and the Shaping of Puritanism. While everybody knows about the challenge that Anne Hutchinson posed to the New England Puritan establishment, the role of ordinary women in congregationalism has been neglected. This talk will focus on how women help to shape Puritan ideas, form Puritan churches, teach fellow believers, and vote on various ecclesiastical issues. On Wednesday, June 10th from 6 to 7.30 p.m., joined the BPL for an online program that was originally scheduled to happen at the Central Library. The event's free, but advanced registrations required to get the Zoom details. We'll include the link you need in this week's show notes. Before we start the show, I'd like to pause and say thanks to our latest Patreon sponsor, Julia C. We're grateful to all the listeners who've stuck with us through the COVID crisis, even though you're not commuting or going to the gym, and you probably have less time for podcasts. We're especially grateful to listeners like Julia, who still sponsor us on Patreon. We know that supporting a podcast won't be the first priority for a lot of people right now, and we completely understand that. However, if your job is safe and your charitable giving is done, please consider helping us make Hub History. For as little as $2 a month, you can offset our expenses like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, and online audio processing tools. If you're interested, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. Thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. We're excited to have Bill Rogers on the show because the Boston Marathon is such an important part of Boston's history, but not many non-runners appreciate the importance of this event to athletes from around the world. The Boston Marathon was first run in 1897, inspired by the success of the first marathon competition in the 1896 Summer Olympics. It's the world's oldest marathon, and, while I am, of course, biased in my opinion, it's the most prestigious. Bill Rogers is the four-time winner of both the Boston and the New York City marathons. He was named the number one marathoner in the world three times by Track and Field News and is an inductee of the National Distance Running Hall of Fame. Bill is an Olympian and a bronze medal winner for the United States in the 1975 World Cross Country Championships. He is also the author of Marathon Man, which details his journey to the top of the running world. Bill Rogers, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nikki. Bill, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got interested in running as a child, like how the interest sparked? Yeah, you know, I started running in 63 uh, with my brother Charlie and our best friend, Jason Keogh. Uh, we're from Hartford, Connecticut, and grew up right outside of Hartford, Newington, and had a the gym class mile. 
as President Kennedy, of course, talking about, um, you know, in 60, second, was it 63 or so? I think so. Must have been. And yeah, yeah, about, you know, the Russian Sputnik and all that, you know, we have to, we have to do some sit-ups and run or walk and the whole deal. So, so, so they had the gym class mile. I was the fastest kid in the school in my gym class mile. I don't know if it was a real mile, but whatever it was. And, and so I suddenly was very motivated that, that you know, that, that I was, that I was good at this, so to speak, you know, whatever that meant, you know, but I joined the cross country team with my brother, Charlie and Jason, because we we went fishing together, we rode our bikes together, went camping out, that sort of thing. We were in the Boy Scouts, you know, and all that. We were, we were suburban kids on the edge of the woods, you know. Right. But riding the bike a lot, we got strong legs. And I think that helped us run cross country. So we had a very small team. There were no girls in 63. It was the very backward days of running, you know, distance running. And um, that's how I became a runner. I had a really good coach. We had a very good coach, Coach Frank O'Rourke. And, and we didn't train very a real lot. By today's standard, it would be considered an insignificant, tiny amount of running. But it was just kind of a fun sport. It was just fun for us, you know. And a lot of people don't think of running as a team sport. But I've always thought of running as a team sport. And I have always run with my friends or family members, whatever, you know, because that gives you strength psychologically, physically, it's easier to go out with someone else. You do it, almost none of the top runners that I know of, they, they didn't succeed on their own. You can't really. Well, Bill, a question I have is, who are the runners that you looked up to when you were growing up? That's an easy one. In 1964, when I was a high school junior, the Olympic Games were on TV, Tokyo, Japan. Mm-hmm. And there were several great American distance runners, uh, Billy Mills, uh, uh, Ogala Sioux uh, from South Dakota, I think. He won the 10,000 meter. To this day, he's the only American to ever win the Olympic 10,000 meters. Oh, wow. I think. I'm pretty sure on that. He was a great champion. He still is doing uh, clinics and so forth. Also, Bill, uh, Bob Scholl from Dayton, Ohio, fellow from the Air Force, won the Olympic gold at 5,000 meters in Tokyo. So I'm watching this and I'm seeing these great American runners and, uh, you know, and it, it's just motivated. I also saw Bibe Bakila, the great Ethiopian marathoner, who's probably the grandfather of modern marathoning because he won Olympic gold in 1960 and then followed through in 64, another gold. Mm-hmm. So it was just a very motivational. Of course, it was, I couldn't understand the marathon, you know, <laughs> what, what's the marathon, you know, and even though I'm, was only living a hundred miles from Boston. And even though my college roommate, Andy Bertha, won the Boston Marathon in 1968, I, it didn't, I knew it was 26 miles when I was at college at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut with Andy and Jeff Galloway. I had these two super runners, you know, and trying to run with them was an experience, but I learned a lot, you know, and, th- and I learned about Boston when I moved to Boston. Then I, I really saw, you know, you know, I have to imagine the Boston Marathon wasn't quite the cultural touchstone that it is now because it was a much smaller race back then. I talked to some of the, the old guys at my gym. I go to the Y here in Hyde Park and, you know, some of the guys who are in their 70s and up these days talk about, you know, just walking up in the morning and signing up and you run the race and get a chicken or fish sandwich at the end and then you're done. 
Yeah, it was a different deal. In some ways, it's it will always be the same because now it's a standardized distance. You know, in the early years, Boston was not the full 26 miles, 385 yards it is today. The course has changed little tiny bits, but essentially it's the same. But um, yeah, it was it was simple when you when you read the books or the history of the early days of marathoning, like um, bricklayer Bill Kennedy who won in 1918, 100 years ago or so. You know what his life was like. He was a bricklayer and he traveled by train. You know, uh, living on his wits. And these guys were really, really tough, uh, all the way up to the modern era, which I think really began in the in the seventies. You know, and and of course, when it really became modernized was when Hancock finally stepped in and and and, and started working with the BAA. <clears throat> but these old champions were just something else. You know, people like Tarzan Brown or Johnny Kelly, Clarence Demar the greatest marathoner of them all in the history of Boston is unreal. It's just unreal. Clarence DeMar is somebody I look back on. He was a, a marathon champion for a 20-year span. And in the meantime, he was setting type at a printer shop and then training when he could in his spare time. I think hitching a ride back and forth, getting trains. You know, Jake, he was he actually wrote a book. I have a copy of his book. You can find his huh. book about his life, everything about the Olympic Games for him about the marathon, he was running like 100 miles a week. Wow. Back in those days. I'm sure that was unheard of. Yeah, it was unheard of in you know, the 1920s, 30s, something like that. Hey, listeners, it's Jake of the Future breaking in with a bit of background on Clarence Tamar. Born in 1888, his mother moved the family from Cincinnati to Boston after the death of his father when Clarence was 10 years old. Due to their extreme poverty, his mother was forced to surrender him to the state, and he attended the boys' school on Thompson Island in Boston Harbor. He hated the school, later calling it a hard and somewhat squelched life. Yet he earned a spot at the University of Vermont, where he started cross-country running. The 1910 Boston Marathon was DeMar's first. He finished second. Later in 1910, he was advised by a doctor that he had a heart murmur and should stop running within a year or two. The next year at the Boston Marathon, the doctors on the starting line advised him of his heart murmur again and told him he should drop out if he got fatigued. They also told him that he shouldn't run any more races after that. Nevertheless, he won that race in 2 hours, 21 minutes, and 39 seconds, a course record. DeMar was one of the 12 members of the U.S. marathon team in the 1912 Summer Olympics, where he ran poorly, finishing 12th, complaining that the coaching staff's dictatorial control over the athletes' training had harmed the team's performance. Although DeMar ran a few races after the Olympics, he soon took a break from serious competition. In his autobiography, he gave his reasons as continuing warnings from doctors that he was endangering his health. Concerned that striving for individual athletic glory was incompatible with the spirit of his religion, and demands on his time from the university extension courses he was taking at Harvard and Boston University. In June of 1915, DeMar received an Associate of Arts degree from Harvard while working as a printer near Boston. DeMar returned to the marathon in 1917, finishing third in Boston despite training very little and then set a course record in the Brockton Fair Marathon that same year. He went on to win seven Boston marathons, and he was a bronze medalist in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He was known by the nickname Mr. DeMarathon, which he certainly earned. 
DeMar won his last Boston in 1930 at the age of 41. His record of seven wins at Boston has never been broken, and he remains the oldest ever winner of the race. And he's, he's the only person or only man that I know of to have won Boston beyond the age of 40. He was 41 when he won his last Boston. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the age I am now. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm done with the marathon. And to, to think of him still winning top tier marathons at 41 after putting that many miles on his body over 20 solid years. I think he won Boston at least six or seven times in that time span. Also, you know, they called those guys from those days until the 70s when money started to come into the sport a little bit, or the 80s, actually. They called it the working man's marathon because most of the people who ran the marathon were working class people. Mm-hmm. You know, but the runners, the modern runners of today, make quite a bit of money. They don't make as much as Red Sox players or the Patriots, you know, or the Celtics, you know. They don't make right. that, but we, but we do make some money today. And that all came about after the Olympic boycott in 1980. Among other things, it just allows somebody to be a specialist. You no longer have, well, with a few notable exceptions recently, you no longer have somebody who's laying bricks or setting type or farming or whatever else all day. You can, you can yeah. run for a living. You can train for a living, essentially. Yeah, but those guys had it really tough. You know, they were hoping maybe to get a job out of their Boston Marathon win or something like that, or, or you know, a, a bit of money. You know, they, they won merchandise. I mean, even in my era, Jay, I lived through the amateur era. Mm-hmm. You know, I ran 12 Bostons, no prize money, including the four that I won, you know. And, um, and one of the trophies I won at Boston disappeared the day I won it, 1975. <laughs> I actually won two trophies. Another one was named after Will Cloney. That disappeared too. And, uh, <laughs> my name wasn't even on the trophy I discovered recently. It was at the BAA headquarters. They finally discovered it somewhere in the trash or something at the Prudential Center or something. <laughs> so, so it took a while for us to earn. There was a kind of respect, I think, which the general public had for marathoners. But I think in general, we, you know, in a way, the marathon was bigger than because, you know, TV hadn't come along to take the limelight um, that has been given to football, um, baseball, basketball. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But so our sport always, and being, so being an Olympic sport and, and forced to be, quote, amateur was a different thing, you know? Bill, what happened after the 1980 Olympics that changed that? Yes. This is a very good and important question. I don't think a lot of the younger pro runners today even know about this history. Because it isn't talked about too much, but I always kind of rant and rave about it because I was hoping to make the team in 1980. The three guys who did make the team were really good runners. I might not have made it, but I had run in 1976 in Montreal. I had a foot injury there and, and so had a poor race, you know, and um, so I wanted to go back. But in 1980, President Jimmy Carter um through political persuasion and other means, uh, kind of leaned on the U.S. Olympic Committee and and corporate America were supporters of the Olympics, including the TV sponsors of the Moscow Olympic Games, not to take part because Russia had invaded Afghanistan. And so it was a big struggle. There's a great book about the politics behind the um, decision to not allow Americans to take part. I was shocked that that was actually enforced, you know, and that the U.S. Olympic Committee 
kind of buckled under the pressure because the United States, along with Greece and Great Britain, had always been the biggest supporters mm -hmm. of the Olympic Games. But, you know, the Olympic Games was born in Europe. It was born in, in, in France and in, in Athens, you know, Greece. So it, it didn't evolve here. You know what I'm saying? So other sports have taken the limelight from the Olympic sports, I think. That, that's my view of it. But anyway, that's what it was. And so, so it, it was after the boycott, we distance runners, about 30 of us, including Boston Marathon champion Greg Meyer, Patty Catalano, who came in second at Boston several times and won Honolulu Marathon four times, um, and many other runners, some from other countries, put on a prize money road race. It was the first prize money road race in America in about the last 80 years. So we had, to, we had to fight for that in our federation. Every country has a federation. So they were trying to control us. They told us we couldn't earn a living. You know, they were making money off of the sport, but we couldn't make any money. That's what the deal was. So we put on this road race in Oregon. It was sponsored by Nike. It was called the Cascade Runoff. And, and all the top Americans were there. Frank Shorter, our Olympic gold medalist, two-time Olympic gold medalist, Don Cardone, came in fourth in the Olympics in Montreal. So we pushed for it, and it finally did come about, and that's why there was prize money today at the Boston Marathon, the New York City Marathon, Chicago Marathon, at the Falmouth Road Race, or anywhere. So through that pressure, did that force the, and it's what, the AAT? Yeah, it's, today it's USA Track and USA Field. USA Track and Field. But in 1981, it was called the Amateur Athletic Union. You know, they were trying to, they, so they tried to suspend Greg Meyer, the Boston Marathon champion, uh, from the whole sport. You know, you can't tie up, try out for the Olympic game next year, you know, because they were trying to control us. So, so we finally broke those chains, but we took a beating for a while. And, and it was, the boycott itself was a political hot potato. And you can see how um, sometimes the American public almost viewed to support um, going to the Olympic Games to compete in Moscow after the Olympic hockey team. You know, Mike Urizioni and those guys, the hockey team defeated the Russians. Right. The miracle the on ice. Public, yeah, then the poll started. So, well, maybe we should <laughs> go to Russia. <laughs> it's kind of a funny side story. But it kind of hurt all those Olympic athletes. You know, the, the athletes from the other sports, baseball, you know, it's in the Olympic Games, but it doesn't have a long heritage of the, in the Olympic Games. Track and field, swimming, gymnastics, wrestling, the, these are the Olympic sports. Yeah. And they were all crushed. Yeah, it seems like a lot of those took, well, some have never come back to their former state and some took a long time. I feel like it's only in the last, sort of the Michael Phelps era that swimming people started getting excited about competitive swimming again yeah yeah and i think the olympics are always looked upon with great uh fervor but it's not until the year they happen you know so so i'm a fan of olympic sports first that's that's the where i that's where i come from you know right and, and i'm a fan of them because for a variety of reasons one these are global sports and number two these are the good health sports which i think we as a country it makes sense or, you know, we don't support them as much, but I would love to see that happen. I'd like to back up for a minute. We mentioned just very briefly your college running experience. So you were at Wesleyan. Yes. And you must have started at Wesleyan in 66, 65? 
66. Yeah. You mentioned that some of your teammates were Jeff Galloway and Amby Burfoot. Um, just for our non-running nerd friends, uh, who, who are they? And what was your event at Wesleyan? Okay, we all ran the mile and the two mile. That was our longest distance on the track. You know, there was no 5K in the 60s on the track. Today, they would have the 5K and even the 10K right. distance. In cross country, you could do five miles, which was quite a leap for me, you know, when I first went to collegiate cross country, mm-hmm. much harder. But um, but Amy Burfoot had the dream of winning Boston because his high school English teacher was young Johnny Kelly from um, the uh, Mystic, Massachusetts area, or Connecticut area. You know, and that's where Amby is from that area, from Groton, you know, nearby. So he had the dream to win because Kelly, young Johnny Kelly won it in 1957. He's the only American who win that entire decade. So Andy and I were roommates when Andy was a senior and he had finally built his strength up. I was training really hard. He's only 21 years old and he won the race. No water on the course. You know, the BAA had no, no, no Hancock support then. And you know, winging it, it was still the working man's marathon, you know, so to speak. And um, very, very tough days of, of running, you know. And, um, but he did win. He came back to our room. I never saw him wearing his medal. Today, when people run the Boston Marathon, they're all wearing the medal. <laughs> I wore mine on the train all the way home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you win the race, they give you the American flag. Well, when I won the race, they gave me some dinky more beef stew and they stole my trophies. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell you, on a cold day, though, a beef stew can be the best thing after a race. My first marathon was the Bay State up in Lowell. Yeah, and sure. it was a It was a cold fall day. Yeah. And they handed me a bowl of beef stew when that thing was over, and it was about the best food I've ever eaten. <laughs> well, it is absolutely. I agree with you, Jay, because after you've run 26 miles, you have a hearty appetite. It's like the best meal you ever ate. You know, <laughs> you're really, really hungry. I mean, you're very, very tired, but after a while, your body's recovering and say, I think I need some food. Drink, <laughs> you know. And Jeff Galloway, Jeff Galloway, Jake, was, was kind of the number two man to Ambi at Westland you know, through the, the 60s, but, but was a young guy who began running in high school and, and, and was always a, a very sort of contemplative person, always thinking about, um, you know, running, you know, what, what does it mean? You know, how can I improve? How can I make it easier? That sort of thing. And that's where he later created that, um, the run-walk program. And he, he's one of the first uh, people to have a running retail store which became a learning center. And you'd bring in podiatrists and, and cardiologists, talk to the, to the new runners and, and encourage them to take part in the sport and get a good pair of shoes too, because your shoes are so key. You know, you don't want to just take any pair of shoes because they look good. You really need to try them on, lace them up, walk around in them, you know, that sort of thing. It's tough though, because you do want them to look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of it. It's just a little bit, that's true. But you got to be careful. You got to be careful. As a supernator, it's a supernator in a women's size 11. It's hard for me to find the right shoe that looks good. (laughs) You know, and I hear you, Nikki. I I swear, at one time, I could could run in almost anything, I think, but I really loved the shoes I was racing in. I raced for ASIC Shoe Company uh, for five years, um, but sometimes I ended up wearing shoes for a company, and they didn't, they weren't too good, you know. I was being paid, I had to wear them. (laughs) And once I finished the Boston Marathon, and I couldn't feel my feet. 
They went That's totally not a good numb. sign. That was not a good one, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually raises a, an interesting question. In the book, you mentioned, uh, I think it was your 19, was it the first one in 74 when you had just basically almost immediately before the race been handed a set, a pair of prototype early yeah. Nike shoes? Yeah. How did you come to, first of all, how did you need those shoes? Then how did you come to get them and race in them that day? Yeah, this is an interesting, crazy story. Because back in the day, all the runners, you know, just as I was speaking of earlier, were all very poor. You know, um, Frank Shorter was, Tom Fleming, who won New York City Marathon twice, Bobby Hodge from Clinton, Massachusetts, Randy Thomas um, from Fitchburgh, Mass. All of us were, were poor because there was no money in this world. We couldn't make a living hardly. How can we keep going? You know, so you try to get a little support, maybe win a 10-speed bike or a TV, something like that. But um in 75, I ran in the World Cross Country Championships. I had made the team, and I ran in Morocco, and I had the race of my life. I actually took a bronze medal in, in the World Cross Country. Only four, three other American men have ever medaled in the World Cross Country. It's rarer to win a medal in the World Cross Countries um, than it is to win an Olympic medal in the marathon on the men's side, because, of course, women have not been at it as long only since 1984. So after that race, Jake, I knew I could run with anybody. You know, so so I talked with Jeff Galloway and, and Frank Shorter, who were my teammates in, Mor in Morocco. I said, I'm running Boston in three weeks. You think you can give me some shoes? Because they're both representing Nike. And, and I didn't have a shoe deal. I was no name, no nothing, you know. And so I got a pair of shoes from a fellow named Steve Prefontaine, who was a great American 5,000-meter, 10,000-meter distance runner. And those were the shoes, put them on my feet, no blisters, light as a feather. You know, I was young, I was 27 years old and tailwind day at Boston, cool weather. It was perfect. It was perfect. And um, it was my third Boston because my first one was Boston 73 in the heat. I got really beat up by the heat. We New Englanders and Midwesterners and people from places like Wyoming, cold weather winter states, anywhere in the U.S. or in the world, and then coming to Boston can be tough. It's one of the most challenging races to try to win because mm -hmm. of our tricky New England weather. So it took me three times. But by then, Jake, I had learned the course and had the good weather and the good shoes. And thank you, Steve Prefontaine. Thank you, Nike. I encourage our listeners to come look at our show notes and see the photos of the shoes that they wore back in the 20s and 30s, where uh, sitting on a couch wearing those shoes couldn't have been too comfortable let alone running a marathon in them. Absolutely. And, you know, Nikki and Jake, you know, when you take a look at the shoes and the BAA has kind of a, a historical museum of all their, you know, paraphernalia, the shoes from Hideki uh, Tanaka, who won it in Boston in 1951, the first Japanese runner to win. Mm -hmm. and, and the shoes are Johnny Miles, who won it back in, I think, the 1926 and all. He's a coal miner's son and all that worked in the mines. Her shoes were terrible. They're terrible. <laughs> so they had leather soles. A lot of them had leather soles back in the, the 20s yeah. and the 30s. Yeah, and they're blistering their feet. And, and that's why, you know, running couldn't really boom mm -hmm. until the 70s, until we started to learn about exercise science and what does health really mean? What does fitness really mean? And what are some, how can we, we needed companies like Nike or Asics or Brooks or New Balance they kept working and they started working more and more and reaching out to the runners and selling their shoes. 
and, and that's how the running boom happened. That and Frank Shorter's Olympic gold medal in Munich, Germany. We all saw that on TV. American had not won Olympic gold. We were not considered very good, we Americans. The Europeans were the best in the world, you know, just as distance runners. The right. Fins, you know, the flying fins, the Brits, the Italians, Spanish. You know, so, so here comes Frank Shorter, out of Yale, by the way, New Englander. New Englander. You know, and um, he comes out and he wins the Olympic gold. It's like, how the heck did he do it? <laughs> and, and, but he did it. And that set the tone for the future. So how did you make the jump from mid-distance to marathon? In, in the book, you say that as you're winding up your, your Wesleyan career, you're actually retiring. You considered yourself retired from running. You know, when I was at Wesleyan, even through high school, Jake, I couldn't race against a lot of the runners because I didn't have the genetic fast-twitch muscle fibers. We are all born either with fast-twitch or slow-twitch. Quite a lot, you know. If you're born with fast twitch muscle fibers, you're good in baseball, football, probably tennis, mm-hmm. you know, basketball. You can jump really high, you know. I'm slow twitch. I have the ability to knees your ability to run long distance, you know. And 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 so so I didn't know that in high school or even in college because exercise science had not developed until later in the 70s when the exercise physiologists began to study athletes like Frank Shorter. Steve Prefontaine, you know, or Don Cardon, people like this, some of our best athletes, or athletes in other sports, you know, they started to take a look at science, the cardiology side, why this sport is so good for your heart. You know, right. back when I first ran Boston, they were checking my heart. They had a bunch of doctors. They told Demar, you shouldn't run. You've got a heart arrhythmia. But the real truth is, of course, we know today that cardio sports are the best thing in the world to do for your health. Mm-hmm. So that's how it took me a while to learn the sport. It took me three times to three years to really learn Boston and really become a marathoner. You know, and even after that, I still got beaten up. It's not a gentle sport. It's a fun sport. It's a friendship sport, Jake and Nikki. You know, you make your friends like you guys were at, were at Hyannis uh, Marathon. And, and you, you're feeling your way through it all the time, you know. But I had eight marathons I dropped out of. It was usually because of the heat, humidity. In the time between running the two mile and trying to break nine minutes at the two mile and... Which you did. Yes. Once I finally broke it. <laughs> so between then and 73, when you first ran Boston, what yes. were you doing with yourself in that time? You know, I immediately, when I graduated from Westland and during my years at Westland, the Vietnam War was going full boom and the sadness was building up and building up and building up. And it was, you know, and I was very against our government's involvement in the war. So it was a tough, tough time. And so I and my brother Charlie and Jason, we were all against the war and we applied for conscientious objective status. You know, I, I really follow people like Martin Luther King, who's got great quotes at his memorial down in Washington, D.C. about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And this is the way I kind of grew up and lived and we all did. So, so I applied for that. Thank God things were starting to change and, and people were starting to take a closer look at what this war was really about, what was happening there, how unfair it was to the American people and the Vietnamese people. So anyway, I, um, I was given the chance to get a job in a nonprofit. And Jason was working at a hospital in Boston, so I followed him up to Boston. That's why I came to Boston. And I had run there in high school. 
I had run in the New England Cross Country Championships at Franklin Park when I was in high school. I didn't really know Boston, but I had my job. I worked as an escort messenger at the Bingham Hospital. I took patients around, you know, to everything down for um, dialysis or took blood samples around the hospital. I actually liked that job a lot. I, I liked it, but it was tough because I saw a lot of sick people. Right. You know, and it was tough, you know. But it changed me. It changed me. And um, at that time, Jason, my old uh, high school teammate and friend, we lived near the Christian Science Church. And so we said, let's go see the Boston Marathon. You know, my, my teammate won that. And so I went over there. You know, we had motorcycles then. We all thought we were living the days of Easy Rider, you know, Jack Nicholson and all of that. You know? So we had our motorcycles. We go to the finish line, and there's Amy Burke and Jeff Galloway, and they're like seventh place. And and they're doing real well. And, and I had become a smoker after, um, cause I was, you know, not happiest time, tough stuff, you know, Vietnam war. And, you know, some of my friends went to Vietnam and everything. And so, um, so, so, uh, so I, I, I slowly started to change. My motorcycle was stolen in a nutshell. Jake was stolen. And, um, after that, I didn't want to wait around for the subway to get to the Brigham. And, and, and so I started running there. And then I joined the Boston Y, you know. So once you once you get a start, Jake, then you then you got it made. And but it was a life changing moment. Thank God my motorcycle was stolen, and I had I had a chance to get back. And I joined the BAA. I, I ran a, a, a the Silver Lake Dodge thirty kilometer, which was won by my old college teammate Amy Burfoot. Mm-hmm. Where was that race? That was uh, along the Boston Marathon course. Ah. Uh. The whole course we cut off near the bottom of Heartbreak Hill. And ran over to this Dodge dealership. First prize in the race, using the old amateur days, was a set of tires. <laughs> Says tires. I didn't have a car. I was, was going to say, Bates not had a car. Got your tires. Yeah, first through third place. None of us had cars. We were all poverty stricken runners. Why do we get involved in this sport? Oh, that's great. It was fun. So, so Jake, after I ran that race, Jock Simple of the Boston Athletic Association became infamous or somewhat notorious for trying to take Kathy Switzer's number back when she, uh, I don't know, inadvertently or something applied for the Boston Marathon when the Olympic organization controlled the Boston Marathon and all races around the world and said, women are not allowed to run this race. And if you allow them to run, you're, you're going to get vetoed as a race to be shut down. So that's what happened. So Jack, recruited me he was kind of a coach and advisor he was a former boston marathoner he was really a good guy but he didn't know any better and he kind of you know he is following the rules of the international olympic committee and if you don't it's like the struggles we all went through you know with the international bodies there change the sport for the better and i think roberta gibb the first woman ever to run boston and kathy switzer and nina Krusik. And, and those pioneers in the sport, Sarah Mae Berman from Cambridge, they really had it kind of tough in a way because, you know, they had to fight the social norms of the time. You know, we look back on them all as, as pioneers now, but they all had to break the rules in some different ways. Bobby Gibb jumped in without a bib. Uh, Kathy Switzer just re- registered under her initial instead of her name. We look it's back on them now as, yeah, exactly. You can see parallels in things that are considered controversial today that in 10 or 20 or 50 years, our kids will look back on us and say, well, how did you possibly hold that belief? You know, it's the powers that be. 
<laughs> you're always dealing with the powers that be. And, and I think uh, it was true in international sports as well. Personality is women are half of most road races and marathons around the world. Um, they comprise a huge role. You know, runners like Joan Benoit Samuelson, who took the Olympic gold in 1984, the first women's Olympic marathon. Um, but they had to fight for it. They had to fight for it. And, and Kathy Switzer, one of the cool things she did was she put on a series of races around the world. And there had to be 27 championships around the world for an event to be considered for introduction into the Olympic Games. For a bit of background, author Charlie Lovett in Olympic Marathon details Catherine Switzer's efforts to bring the women's marathon to the Olympic level. In the late 1970s, Catherine Switzer retired from competitive running and led the way to the inclusion of a women's marathon in the Olympics. In 1977, Switzer, then director of the Women's Sports Foundation, met an executive for the Avon Cosmetics Company who told her the company was interested in sponsoring a running event for women. Switzer wrote a 75-page proposal describing how Avon might sponsor a series of events, and the company liked her idea so much that they hired her to plan the races. The first Avon International Marathon was held in Atlanta, Georgia, in March of 1978, drawing women from nine countries. The 1979 Avon Marathon, held in West Germany, attracted over 250 world-class entrants from 25 countries. The theory that women's marathoning was not popular enough to become an Olympic sport was dramatically disproved. Still, the drive for inclusion in the Olympics was far from over. The third Avon International Marathon was held in London on the final day of the Moscow Olympics. Women from 27 countries competed, and for the first time in history, five women finished below the 240 barrier. Obviously, we think it's time a women's marathon was made part of the Olympics, said Switzer. We're trying to prove to people that women are just as suited, or even more suitable, for marathoning as men. Switzer traveled to Los Angeles in February of 1981, when the executive board of the IOC was scheduled to meet. She knew the vote on the race would be close. The board was made up of nine countries, eight of which were represented at the meeting. The Soviet Union openly opposed the creation of the race, and Switzer feared that Panama and Romania would side with their political ally. Spain, Japan, India, and New Zealand favored the race. Belgium appeared to be undecided. Five votes were needed for the resolution to pass. On the morning of February 23rd, Switzer went to the hotel where the meeting was being held. Unsure what she could do to further her cause, she approached the delegate from Belgium in the hall and began to tell him all about the success of women's marathoning the number of women competing, the quality of their races, and their good health. The delegate took careful notes and then disappeared into the meeting. Unable to stand still while she waited for the result, Switzer went out for a six-mile run. At 6.30 that evening, the executive board of the IOC announced that a women's marathon had been given its approval and would likely be included in the 1984 Summer Games in Los Angeles. The committee had even decided to ignore a rule stating that all new events had to be approved four years in advance of their inclusion in the Games. The Soviet Union was the only country to vote against the race. So that's how that evolved. You know, she was an Avon, this company Avon, which we all know, got behind, helped her with doing this. And so that 
took some years. And finally, that did occur, you know. And, and then Joan Benoit Samuelson was in the right place at the right time. Young Benoit uh, Bowden, student athlete, wins Boston in 79. Then by 84, she's ready to crank out, you know, and crank out she did. She won the inaugural women's Olympic marathon in eighty yes. in uh, L.A. In L.A., yeah. yeah. Yes. And if anybody has seen, well, if anybody hasn't seen video of, of her coming into the stadium, no other runner within sight, it's very dramatic. <laughs> Everybody should go look that up on YouTube. <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes, too. Yes, absolutely. I was actually working for ABC, so I was about 60 yards in front of Joan in the ABC truck. And but I couldn't talk to her, but I but when she made her move, she made a dramatic, uh, taken by surprise move at the three mile mark of the race, and I thought she was going to win anyway. I thought she would mm-hmm. win. Greta White's the great Norwegian champion who won New York nine times, and and was the best in the world. Um, was taken by surprise, and Ingrid Christensen and Rosa Moda, these other champions, but it was a hot day, and I think it was a stepstone, a, a a real mark, you know, and then women. Then, then, then the sport went all over the world, you know? Well, kind of related to that. So if you could go back in time and spectate any of those historic races in Boston, what race would you like to go back and see? Oh, my God. This is tough. This is tough. You can have you more know, than one. <laughs> I, I've met Johnny Kelly, both Johnny Kellys. I met Gerard Cote, the four-time Boston Marathon champion from Canada. Robert Chariot from Kenya, uh, Moses Tanui from Kenya. I've met a lot of the runners from around the world. I've been very lucky, you know, to uh, when I won Boston, it changed my life. I got invited to other races around the world. And um, But if I could meet Clarence DeMar, he's the king of the Boston Marathon. I'm not sure who the queen is, you know, maybe Joan or maybe Catherine Dereba, who's a four-time winner of Boston. You know, uh, it's a very, it's a toss-up in a way. But I think... Um, I'd like to see DeMar uh, and have met him. I've de- met some family members of his, you know, but, but I'd probably go back to uh, his early days when he was a racer, you know? If I had to answer the same question, I'd, I'd also go DeMar, but I think I want to, I think I want to see that last win when he's such a veteran, so many miles under his belt and still powering through to a win in 1930, 31, 30, I think. You know, after he'd been doing it since he'd been running that race since the teens. You know, what's cool about DeMar, too, he was always a teacher, a coach, like a Boy Scout leader. Right. Kind of a, a kind of a little bit of a religious guy, uh, worked up in Keene Normal School, you know, Keene College. There is a DeMar half marathon. I am hoping to run it this year if we oh, can cool. run, you know, by late September, you know, but but. Yeah, he, he was iconic figure. He took a bronze medal in the Olympic marathon. Um, I don't think his seven wins will ever be challenged at Boston. But, you know, just, just a, a unique figure. And I think Boston being the oldest consecutively run marathon in the world, this is global sport. You know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not just a domestic sport. It's global. It's like soccer. So, so you've got competition. And, and so this is real tough that he has that record, you know, but he seemed like, I guess, I wish I, I wish I, I'd like to have met the doctors who told him that he shouldn't run the yard. <laughs> right. I heard, I heard that the doctor later passed away. And so Clarence said, well, you know, maybe I'll go back to this running. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd like to see 
the race between Johnny Kelly and Tarzan Brown on Heartbreak Hill. That would be dramatic. Yeah. yeah. And I just like the, um, you know, the push you get when somebody thinks they got you (laughs) (laughs) and how that can motivate you to pull ahead. And, you know, Johnny Kelly was also an astounding figure. He has the all-time record for 61 for finishes at Boston. A note from the editing room on young John Kelly, Tarzan Brown, and Heartbreak Hill. Ellison Brown, widely known as Tarzan Brown, was a member of the Narragansett tribe of Rhode Island, and also known as Deerfoot among his people. He was a two-time winner of the Boston Marathon in 1936 and 1939. He also participated in the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. He was scheduled to participate in the 1940 Olympics in Tokyo, but those were canceled due to the outbreak of World War II. Young Johnny Kelly, or Johnny Kelly the Younger, was a fixture of the Boston Marathon for six decades. He won the 1935 and 1945 runnings and finished in second place a record seven times. Between 1934 and 1950, he finished in the top five 15 times, consistently running in the 230s. He ran his last full marathon in Boston in 1992 at the age of 84, his 61st start and 58th finish. Heartbreak Hill is one of the most feared stretches in any marathon. In reality, at a 3.3% elevation grade at its steepest point and just 600 meters in length, it doesn't sound so bad. However, it comes at the 20-mile mark of the race, right after two other challenging hills, and after runners trash their quads running the first 14 miles on a downhill trend. The name comes not from generations of runners who have suffered up the slope, but from one particular heartbreak. During the 1936 race, Tarzan Brown raced a blistering pace early on. The press actually didn't follow him, assuming that he would crash and burn. Just past mile 20, on the fourth of the Newton Hills, Johnny Kelly caught up to Tarzan Brown. As Kelly overtook Brown, an amazing feat given the already record-breaking pace that Brown had set, Kelly patted Brown on the back. What followed was a struggle between the two men. Brown took the lead on the downhills, and Kelly took the lead on the uphills, until finally, Brown took the lead again to win the race, as Kelly fell to a fifth-place finish. The struggle inspired writer Jerry Nason to name the last Newton Hill Heartbreak Hill, because Brown broke Kelly's heart there. In 1993, Globe reporter Michael Vega, covering the unveiling of Johnny Kelly's statue, reported the following. As the defending champ, Kelly admitted that he was a little cocky when he came up on a struggling Tarzan Brown as they approached the treacherous stretch of hills in Newton. Kelly gave Brown a tap on the back, which was all the fuel Brown would need to rekindle his fire to win the race. The late Globe sports editor Jerry Nason, who witnessed the incident from the press vehicle, saw it as the turning point of the race and dubbed it Heartbreak Hill. He named it after me, Kelly said. I didn't mean to be fresh or anything when I tapped Tarzan Brown, and it was just a tap. But Nason said I should never have done that because it wasn't right. For 15 years, he kept reminding me about it until I told him, enough's enough. You know, he was truly, in baseball terms, he'd be Lou Gehrig. Or maybe, maybe Lou Gehrig was the Johnny Kelly. <laughs> you know, I'm always going to lean for running, but, um, but Tarzan Brown was a guy who struggled a lot. 
unfortunately, in his life because he's very poor. Because mm-hmm. no money in the sport, and he didn't get treated right, you know, a lot of times. And so that was something that I always, you know, all of us runners who knew the history of the sport really wanted to fight against because of the way athletes like Darjean Brown were treated, you know. But yes, that would have been a great duel to see because because they were both pretty even, I think, you know. Yeah, and you know, it was a good race because we're still calling Heartbreak Hill Heartbreak Hill eighty odd years later. <laughs> And how many other runners have folded there? In fact, Jake, that's my favorite place to drop out of Boston. (laughs) (laughs) I dropped out there three times, Jake, so I highly (laughs) recommend it as a dropout place. (laughs) Well, I only ran Boston once, but I really considered that as a dropout spot as I was coming up. It was rough. What year I, did I you felt like you considered uh, the entry onto Boylston Street as a dropout point, if I remember correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, the last last three or four miles were were bad. <laughs> I ran in 2016. I got a, a charity bib in 2016. Absolutely, With three weeks notice, Bill. Three weeks oh notice. My gosh, you know you're you're a real stalwart that you finish. <laughs> you you know a lot of the new runners. I wasn't that dedicated. My first mm. Boston was was too hot and I didn't I got dehydrated and I, I, I kind of I wasn't that determined to finish. I made it stop a heartbreak and then I walked home. I lived in Jamaica Plain. But um, one of the good things that came out of Hancock's involvement, we needed the support. Will Cloney, the old race director for many years, who did such a great job with no financial support, he knew he needed, he tried to get it. Mm-hmm. Couldn't succeed with it. Finally, uh, Mayor Flynn of Boston um, worked with many of the top runners like Amy Burfoot and Greg Meyer and uh, a bunch of others, um, including my brother Charlie, who ran our, our Rodney Center, um, and, 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 and talked to some of the political leadership in Boston what you got to do because the top runners are going to go where the money is. <clears throat> and for two years, with the exception of the great runner from Cape Britain, Jeff Smith, it was a weak field at Boston. And so Boston was always about the best coming. You know, some of the best. Have Tarzan Brown duke it out with Johnny Kelly. Have Gerard Cote come in and duke it out with Johnny Kelly. Whoever is there, you know, they started to go to the races where the money, because money was being allowed around the world then. So finally, yes, the BAA relented and said, yep, we got to change. Hancock stepped up to the plate. They have been a great sponsor. For something like 34 years, and that 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 led to the Boston Marathon uh, being able and the BAA to continue their leadership in the sport. That was wonderful. They did good, and it helped to open it up to amateurs like me because then yes. they could have the course support with you know water stations and volunteers yes. and traffic control and you know, all the all the stuff you need to have that bigger field. Yes, absolutely. It, it changed the sport. I mean, every year about $30 million, $40 million are raised at Boston for a lot of different groups. I work with one of those groups. I work with Impact Melanoma because my grandfather died from melanoma. And so so all the runners are tied in one way or another. They're a group of uh, Boston champions like Ryan Hall, Mepka Flazidi, you know, Dina Castor, mm-hmm. the Olympians like those runners, Shalane Flanagan. You know, so so we all work with Hancock trying to build interest in a lot of different aspects of the race, the fundraising side, how you can enter the Boston Marathon, how you can become fitter, why you should try it yourself. I mean, 
you don't have to run the Boston Marathon to be fit. I think if you can run, build up to about three miles, you're doing pretty good. You know, you've built your cardio. You've probably reduced your chances of having a heart attack, especially for us guys, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I think though, that kind of side of our sport still not known that well. And I'm hoping there will come a day when the, the – the, particularly when we're looking at the COVID-19 stuff happening now, we know that a lot of people who are falling are people who are very sick. They have diabetes. I have diabetes in my family, so I know about that. I used to work with the American Diabetes Association. But some of these people are, are falling because they didn't have a way to get, you know, in high school in America, you get chosen for a team. Well, I mm-hmm. think we should have a choice, more choices. So I like the 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 choice where you can take part in another sport, you know. And that's why I'm glad to see soccer and sports like that grow too. Well, speaking of COVID nineteen and exercise, I'm curious to to hear your perspective. I know back in your Jamaica Plain days, you used to train by logging a whole lot of laps around Jamaica Pond. Yes, and yeah. There's been a lot of controversy about whether they should make the path around Jamaica Pond one way so people aren't breathing on each other as they oh, yeah. pass. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I understand there's a lot of neighborhood drama over this question. Well, you know, I think, I think we have to do, protect our health. This is for everybody. This isn't just for this person in this sport, you know, superstar athlete, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? People on the news all the time. This is for everybody. This is for the public. This is for everybody. So I, I think whatever makes sense. So when I go for a run, I wear my mask around my neck. If, if I'm in an area where I can get out, there are people on the same side of the road, I cut to the other side of the road, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so, so I've had no, no problems. But, yeah, I remember running around the pond there. It was never as crowded as that. But, of course, the virus then. Right. I would, you know, I explore the different trails. you got to look for where it's not so crowded. You know, in South Boston, yeah, I saw some areas when I was down there recently visiting uh, my girlfriend's uh, son and, and, and wife there. Um, and I could see areas away from the big crowds. So you do searching a little bit, find where you can go. But it is beautiful around the pond. You know, it's just a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. So, so parks, you know, I used to run in Franklin Park, you know. I'd go up to the park, the Franklin Park Zoo is there. I love the zoo, you know, go up around there. I used to run on golf courses. Mm-hmm. Um, just down your street. Now I run in my neighborhood. I go wherever the car's on. Cars, yeah, that's got to be the key. I like yeah. to run in the wilderness section of Franklin Park. Yes, yes. You know, to run um, wherever, you know, we are, we're, we're, we're part of neat. We're supposed to be out there. We run in the shade in the summer. It's a little, it's easier. You get out of the sun, you know, run in the early morning when it's, when it's cooler. I always run with a bottle of Gatorade diluted with water with me. I run like a half a mile, then I stop and I take a drink. And I'll go another quarter mile, half a mile, and take a drink. And that way you're building your heart. You know, you're getting stronger. You can do it. We can all do this. You know, there's people, the oldest person to run a marathon was 100 years old. Hard to believe, but we, have the, we all have the strength. I don't think that makes sense in a certain way, but I think the point I'm trying to make is we, we have, we all, we're an endurance animal. We're not really very quick. Even those guys who move quick in soccer or football or Usain Bolt, most of the animal kingdom, they can outsprint us. But we, we do have a big heart, but we've got to protect our health. And we see that um, these days, you know. So you've talked a little bit about your 
current running regimen and you're mixing in a little bit more walking, a little more Galloway style. <laughs> but what does your what does your calendar for a year look like these days? What you what know, are the high points of your racing season now? Jake, I, I I still go to races in my prime, in my youth, you know, I was 30 years old or whatever, 25, 35. You know, I, I kept racing. I quit um, one year, so a year and a half during the Vietnam War, I was done. I thought it was done. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was very tricky. Um, but but I got back in the sport. I was very lucky to be able to get back. So so um, I I go to about fifteen races. No, I go to about thirty five races a year. Mainly, I go into the expos. I meet the new runners. I try to talk to them about avoiding injuries. That's everything. You avoid injuries, you're going to keep building your heart. You're going to avoid keep your health and everything. Um, run on dirt and grass when you can. And the fitting footing is good. Mm-hmm. Go to a specialty running store. You know, whether it's marathon sports in different neighborhoods or PR running in South Borough where I go or wherever, um, you get some real expertise. Um, those are key things. I run about 30 miles a week, sometimes 40. That's my high. You know, I'm 72 years old. Um, I think the thing is I try – I still am a competitive runner to a degree. I go to these races and I try to win my age group, okay, which is 70 to 74. And the good thing about these Olympic sports, whether it's cycling or swimming or running, you can keep going. Like Johnny mm-hmm. Kelly did, or Paris did. We can keep running and be active. Most people aren't out for trying to win, but there's quite a few. And some of them, it's just phenomenal. We probably have a million Americans over the age of 70 who are running, and some of them are, are phenomenons. I mean, right. I can't get near them. And neither wow. can Frank Shorter, because we, we, we spent 40, 50 years running. You know, uh-huh. we, we have... At a, at a cellular level, we're, we have pretty good health, but we kind of are, I don't know how to describe it, maybe, maybe it's that our bodies are a bit tired, you know, because we're, we're like old cards. And, like, and these 70-year-olders who are new to it, maybe they started at age 60, they're retired or something, and they start working out, and they're like cars that were in the garage, and they come out. And these people are really they're phenomenal. They're phenomenal. There's only one runner who has bucked this trend, and that's Joan Benoit Samuelson. She's the only one. I think she explains it, Jake. She's a cross-country skier in Maine in the winter. So she's got the strong arms and body. She can really push, you know. And she's got this certain mindset. And I think she just has this kind of attitude that um, I'm going to keep going for a while yet, you know. But it is a sport for all livelihoods. And um, so now I, I run with my girlfriend, Karen, you know, mm-hmm. and um, some of my buddies, but we can't run together. Some of my buddies now, like I said, it's a team sport. So right. four or five or six of us, we run, we, we go to a little, uh, a park and we find different neighbors. You can run anywhere. But you, the best thing is if you can get on the dirt, run through the woods, you know, I love that feeling. I like to, we're in Hyde Parks. So we're pretty close to the Blue Hills, and I like to take my dog. He's he's a little older now. He doesn't go as far with me, but on a hot really? summer day, if you go first thing in the morning in the woods, you know, yes. the, you're in the shade, sort of that yes. that that cooler, moist air. Yes. I feel like you can just go and go. You know, it's great. Yes, you're a smart runner, Jay. Smart runner. I, was <laughs> hey, always, I like to keep was, it easy. <laughs> I was always a dumb runner. I would go out at ten in the morning, and I come back, I'd be dripping with sweat. <laughs> I wasn't smart. You know, now I'm trying to go out earlier, and but but I think it helps a lot. Yeah, you run, you bring your dog with you. I like to run at 9 p.m. That's my <laughs> when the sun's spot. down. Absolutely, yep. because the sun, the, the sun, Nikki is our enemy for just yes. 
It's the hardest yes, it thing is. to do. <laughs> and Dehydrate. people say if you run first thing in the morning, like you're more likely to do it. You know, you're not going to like get distracted. But I find I need the whole day to talk myself into it. Like, I got to be well, like, Nikki, you're going to do it today. No, yeah, that's really. good. I mean, get out there. <laughs> I need you, a you, solid 10 hours yeah. to psych myself up. But, you know, everyone's different. Most people, most people have like a routine type of job, going to work and everything, 40 hour job, a job. They run in the morning because that sets your day up. Because if you go on a regular, say you're working in, I don't know, a supermarket, you're working with people all day, you're exhausted by the end of the day. But if you have a if you have a hard labor job or something, yeah, yeah. labor some, you oh, work yeah. in construction or something, you know what I mean? You know, it's different. Yeah, but for I, sure. So most people are out there in the mornings, uh, especially in the summers. In the winter, that's probably not a good idea because it's so cold and icy here in New England. But I think we all have to find what works for us. Mm-hmm. And that's what we all have done. I'm going back to the the marathon. I believe that when you were winning in the 70s, the finish line was not the finish line that we all know and love today. Can you explain like where you went when you came into Brighton, how the course ended? Yeah. The start line wasn't the same either. Yeah. Oh. I don't go back to 1924 when the VAA had to change it. To it used to start in Ashland, right? When it was 24 and a half. Yeah, it started in Ashland, Mass. Now it's in Hopkinton because they had to add a, a mile and a half or something. But it was a little different even when I started it. In I didn't realize that. Where was the starting line back then? It was a, the Today you start going down the big hill. You know? yeah. We were around the corner about 100 yards uh, behind the, the access area now. So there was a mad dash for about 100 or 200 yards. People were sprinting to get to this turn. It was ridiculous. It's a marathon, you know? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good, comfortable start to me. <laughs> it's not a good strategy. It's not a good strategy. So it was a good move, you know, years later when uh, Hancock became involved too. And, and, and Dave McGilvery, who's probably the best race director, organizer in the country, uh, was hired by Hancock. And he's uh, really uh, organized things so well, him and his team at DMSC Sports. But um, yes, it was different. When I finished in, in, in the 70s and everything, into the 80s, I think, oh, in 86, they changed when Hancock came on board. Prudential Center was where we finished, and that's where all the shops are now. We used to go finish down in front of this big statue that was there, and and so, uh, uh, but in 86, when Hancock came on board and contributed quite a large amount of money to this, they're going to have it end further down the road by their building, I think, mm-hmm. right? You know, the Hancock building and everything. So that's what it was. It's not too different. The, the, I, I like the old finish a bit better because we could take the right on Hereford, and then you went straight up Hereford. You took a sharp left, and you ran downhill about two or 300 yards. Today, when you finish, you make the left-hand turn onto Boylston, and you got about half a mile. It's a tough finish. You go, you know, Jake, you did that last half mile. <laughs> You know, I did. I did. I was in a lot of pain for that last half mile. <laughs> and, and it can kind of, it's so emotional. When you run the marathon and you knock it off, it's a feather in your cap. All I'm going to say, it is a feather in your cap. You know what I'm talking about. Everyone has done them. Any marathon knows that, but in particular Boston, Boston is the marathon that I think runners want to do more than any other. 
there is heavy competition you know, from New York City Marathon, which will be doing its 50th this November, if COVID is cleared out okay. Right. You know? And of course, Boston, some version of Boston, I hope, will be run in September. <clears throat> um, but it's a challenge on a worldwide basis. You know, the London Marathon is a big marathon, mm-hmm. very successful. They raised something like $100 million at London. They mo- all the marathons modeled themselves after Boston. So there was a lot of weight on the, on the Boston BAA. They have good leadership. Tom Grill, the leader now, he was a member of Great Boston Track Club. He was a Boston Marathoner himself years back. He became a lawyer and all that. Gloria Ratty, Jack Fleming. They have a great, a great team there now. Before, it was just Will Cloney and Doc Semple, you know. <laughs> right. It's a little bit bigger operation now. It's a bigger, much, well, more financed and more smoothly operated event. So, Bill, you had four wins in New York also. How, how do those two courses compare, you know, from a, from a racing yeah. strategy or the experience? Yeah. You know, to me, they were very similar, you know, and I'm from Hartford in between Boston and New York. So I felt a little bit of a connection, but I was really, I was like any other marathoner. In those days, there weren't many marathons around, 73, 74. New York started in 1970. And, um, so I ran my first New York in 74. It was four laps of Central Park, September. It was 90 degrees. Mm. It was brutal. But I had a friend named Tom Fleming from New Jersey who had won it twice in those days. So I thought, well, I'll go to it because first prize is a trip to Olympia, Greece. And I'm a huge fan of the Olympic Games, and I wanted to go see if I could win that, you know, Olympic Airways, you know. I got into the lead. I held the lead for 20 miles. I was a half a mile ahead, but the heat got me, and I folded. And a fellow named Art Hall from the Staten Island area, and a buddy of mine came up, and he said, Bill, because we runners, we help each other when we're down. That's that's the way the sport is. We're competing, but there's camaraderie, too. And he said, Bill, can I help you? He got me some water, and I kind of hobbled to the finish, you know. But then in 1976, Greg um, LeBeau, the organizer, the originator of, along with a couple other people in the New York Roadrunners Club, um, founded the uh, the modern era New York City Marathon, the Five Borough Race. Five Boroughs, so we, yeah. Yeah, so, so Fred LeBeau came to Falmouth, Massachusetts, where Frank Shorter, our country's Olympic gold medalist on the men's side, uh, the most recent, there was only two. Uh, and, and and I had run the Olympic marathon and had a terrible race. He invited us both to run this New York City marathon. And we said, sure, yeah, we'll run it, you know, because that's what it was like in those days. <laughs> we run everywhere, you know, got running shoes, we'll travel, you know. <laughs> so Frank was making jokes. I wonder if they're going to be able to pull this off in New York, you know. It's so new, running over the Veritano Narrows Bridge. And there were 2,000 runners in the race, which we thought was a huge race, you know. But for me, it was my... um my Olympic race because I had, had a foot injury and, and, and got beaten up in the Olympic marathon. I didn't release what I was capable of. So, so the day in New York in 76 was a beautiful, crystal clear, low humidity day, not the heat, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I took the lead coming into the city over the Queensboro bridge and, and I, I ran to the finish, you know, and that, that set me up. Once I won it, I knew I have shot to win it again because it's like, Jake, you did Boston. You know you could do Boston again. You get empowered when you do the sport. When you run 
And Nikki, you're a runner. When you go out and you do your run, you know you can do it again. It's all up here. It's a psychological kind of sport. But that's why Tom Brady comes to us. Tom Brady, he knows what he can do with what he does. I'm serious. Right. It's the same for all of us. And once you knock off an event, you know, once you do a 5K, then you start thinking, well, maybe I can do a 10K. Then you start thinking, well, maybe I'll do a half marathon. It's a kind of a slippery slope. You have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what happened to me. We did a couch to 5k program. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I had stopped running and started smoking for you know a decade, two decades uh, after high school. I love, I love, are you an ex smoker? I hope you're an ex. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I love I, the ex smokers. Good. It's been a little over nine years. Good for you. My, but you replaced smoking with running as your addictive behavior. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> I was always, I always had that behavior, you know, as a kid, I was an active kid, but, but I had relatives died from smoking. You know, people I knew smoking kills still something like 200,000 Americans a year. So, you know, this is bad news, you know? So I want to convert all, every time I go to a race, I ask people at a clinic, there's 200 runners there, maybe 50 or whatever. I say, any ex-smokers in the audience? Cause I love you. You people are tough. <laughs> how do you get out? Because I know someone who couldn't quit, you know, took them down, you know, and they closed. And so, very, very tough. But, but, um, but I think the thing is, once you've done an event, you know, New York is exciting. It's like Boston. They're, they're blood brothers or sisters, you know. They're, they're right. Just, they're the same. And Chicago is too. Chicago is a great marathon too. I've run Chicago a couple of times. But it's a flat race. I was better on a course with hills. Everyone's a little different. Some people are good on hills and, and some people are better on the flat. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a contradiction. New York is actually slower than Boston. It, it's a, a little bit tougher because you've got the bridges. The road surface is a little, little more challenging than Boston. I think they do a better job with the roads in Boston. Hmm. Mayor Walsh, good job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the mayors of all the towns heading in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rel relatively little of the Boston Marathon is in Boston. <laughs> You're, you're absolutely right. But, you know, Fred LeBeau used to come to the Boston Marathon before there was a New York City Marathon. You know, that's where he cut his teeth. That's where, and George Hirsch, one of the founders of the New York City Marathon, also did that. Um, Interesting. Um, so, so everyone did, the runners. And, and then out of New York came the London Marathon and the Berlin Marathon and Tokyo cranked up. So the Japanese were always very much into marathons. You know, going back a hundred years, just like the Americans. So, so our sport has, our sport has the history that can match baseball or football or basketball or any other sport, because we're an Olympic sport. Mm -hmm. Or even prior to the Olympics, you know, there was racing. You know, the first cross country races came from England, and I think like 1847 or something. So, so we're an old sport, and and we were meant to move. You know, if you ever read that book, Born to Born to Run, you know how humans evolved and that sort of thing and, and uh, to run down our prey and build mm -hmm. our cardio. You know, we have this great heart. We can we have a bigger heart for a body size than a lion does. He's great in the sprint. We just need a little head start in that guy. <laughs> yeah, the proto-humans, any any deer in the forest could out, outrun us on the short path, but we could keep them going until they got tired and just That's keep right. running them down, running them down, right? That was the Galloway walk run. <laughs> and there are Harvard researchers who have looked at this, you know, human evolution. 
how we evolved, you know, on the plains and everything, Serengeti or wherever, you know, humankind evolved out of Africa, um, Ethiopia. You know, it's it's no strange thing that these are some of the best athletes in the world in distance running today, you know. Yeah, have the the tradition of running and in the highlands, you know, the conditions. Yes. To turn out some really excellent runners. Yes, yes. If you are 7,500 feet in I-10 Kenya, you know, or Nairobi 5,000 feet, if you're up at the altitude, then you come to sea level, you've got 5% more oxygen. Wow, this is great. This is so easy. <laughs> I can beat these runners from sea level so easy. I'll and tell you, you see it all the time, all the time. The reverse is equally true. I, you know, I live about 15 feet above sea level <laughs> right here in Boston. Absolutely. And when we go out West to visit people or to go on vacation, like we were in Yosemite yes. a couple of years ago up in the mountains. Yeah. Man, it takes it right out of me. It's oh. not a chance. I feel like the biggest couch potato and I'm in pretty decent oh. shape. 5% less oxygen. And it shows you the edge that these athletes from altitude have. And they're not only from Kenya or Ethiopia uh, or Africa, there are Americans from altitude and some of our top marathoners and distance runners and historically have been from altitude. Some have not been, you know, like Frank Schroeder was born at sea level in Munich, Germany, you know, Alberto Salazar was born in Cuba, you know, Desi Linden was born at sea level, I think in California. So, so it depends, but some of our top runners have been born at altitude in Colorado or Utah, you know, so you can see the effect. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the, the physical part, but then there's the mental part, you know, and some of, some of the best athletes really kind of just made up their mind. Like Jake Kennedy from in 1918, when he finally won Boston, when you read his book, you know, about him, he finally made up his mind, you know, I'm going to win this finally, how it changed his life, you know. Bill, how do you celebrate um, Patriots Day today now that you're no longer running Boston? You know, I go into Boston, I work with Hancock. I'm one of the ambassadors at Hancock. And, and so I work with, uh, sometimes we would go to the expo. Usually we, we would do events like we might meet with the Hancock employees. We have something like several hundred employees who will run the Boston Marathon, including Mary Kate Che, who runs the Boston Marathon for Hancock. She works for Hancock. And she's a Boston Marathoner herself, like 23 years or something. And, and Greg Meyer, 1983 Boston Marathon champion works with their employees and takes them out on training runs on the course. Um, so, so, so we'll, we'll do clinics, you know, we'll meet with some of the uh, Hancock people in financial services. We'll go to some events with them and Dina Castor, Jesse Linden, all these athletes come in, Man Hall, Meb, you know, and we just have fun because we all, we know we were lucky. We were lucky, really. To win this race, you know, and once you, once you win it, then you have a chance to do other stuff, you know, and we were all lucky. So, so, um, and we have fun. You know, we get to go to some great dinners. Food is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, a good group to, to spend some time with. When too. you don't have to worry about what it's going to do to your stomach the next day. It's Absolutely. really good. Right. But, but you know, I'll tell you one other thing, just one last thing, Nikki, because I love cheering the runners on. I love going to the finish, any marathon. But I guess in particular Boston, my first marathon and where I failed the most three times, you know. But I love to see the happiness. You can't buy it. 
you cannot buy happiness. It, it has to come from you, you know, or something. And, and when you see these runnings come in and the people, it's, it's everybody. This is the most, I don't know if the word inclusive has been overused, but it's truly, truly the sport for everybody. But it's tough on everybody. And to see people come in, they're all smiling. They're happy. They're running with each other. It's just incredible. I ran with my girlfriend one year, you know, and it's just mind-boggling when you can do this. She's running with her daughter, Maureen, her son, John, is run. I mean, it's a family sport. It, it's got everything. So one year, Hancock and the BAA told me, Bill, we don't need you anymore. It was actually 2013. Go home. So I went home, and my girlfriend and I did a run. And and then after we came back from the run and and, and started getting phone calls, you know, and, and someone said there's a bombing in Boston. What are you talking about? Probably a car, a radiator exploded, something weird. Right. Then on TV, I saw the uh, wet marks on the ground. I said, yes, the bombing. It's some, this is terrorism. So I knew what it was right away. I knew what it was right away, you know. And, um, you know, we were a target, sort of, even though those two guys never intended to uh, do it at the Boston Marathon. They intended it to hit another place with big crowds. But, uh, you know, terrorism when you see it. You know, so so I've been in. I was once involved in a in a in a, in a semi-military thing, a coup d'état in a foreign country once, where I was on the ground and the military were going by with machine guns and stuff. So it was a little nerve-wracking, but I knew what had happened that day. And some of my friends had run, and my daughter, one of my daughters, was at the finish line. You know, my brother was there. So the fear hits you, you know, and that's what they want to do. They want to make you fearful. So the runners are pretty tough. But Boston Strong, it's for real. I think Boston proved that. We all proved that. America proved that. The incredible demand, the fact that they had to increase the size of the field for the Boston Marathon in 2014 proves it. Yeah, that absolutely. People were clamoring to come back as soon as they could. They had to open, make a, a bigger race than ever before the, the following year. And there was the sadness. You know, young Martin Richard, this is the great sadness. And the other people, you know, innocent. You know, and um, but I think that the BAA and the city of Boston, the first responders, handle it so well. One of my friends, you know, one day I got a call um, um, that, you know, one of my friends, some he had won, he had run in the Boston Marathon. My name Keith Moore. He went for TGX and every year. He would run. He was a fundraiser, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he had his Boston medal and he gave me his medal. And there's a group called Medals for Metal. You know, so it's for kids mm-hmm. in the hospital. And, and so anyway, they had this medal program. So he gave me his medal. I went in with one of these surgeons. He's actually an Iraqi war veteran guy, and he was a surgeon there. Mm-hmm. And he um, and I went in, and I gave a medal. We gave the medal to this young woman who he had worked on, on her leg. She had been beaten up by shrapnel, you know, but her whole family was there. It's uh, thought-provoking, to say the least, you know, when you meet people who are really hit. Yeah. Um, so, so most of us have never been hit. You know, we were never in a situation like that. But Boston did get hit. But I saw the memorial. You know, in the days afterwards. But so I think um, I don't know. Runners, like I said, it's team sport. Team sport. Yeah. One thing I was happy to see a f- a few years later. I was at the uh, City of Boston archives in West Roxbury, and the the city archives actually cataloged and stored 
a lot of what was left for that memorial, the impromptu memorial in Copley Square. They have shoes and cards and posters and marathon medals and all the, obviously not every single item that people left, but a selection just so a hundred years from now, somebody can open up those boxes and get a sense of what Boston felt at that time, um, which I thought that was really good thinking to, uh, to have the foresight to preserve that. But I remember going out, I was down there a day or two later, and I went out to the memorial, and the messages were from around the world. And at the time, I was getting phone calls. It was really weird. My dog had chewed up my cell phone. <laughs> I was getting phone calls, like from the BBC and everything. What is your comment? You know, the, the London Marathon's coming up in a week. There, should we, are we going to shut this marathon down? I said, no, no. You know, so the runners in London saluted the runners of Boston. It's a worldwide sport, like I said, and we all stick together. But some of the marathons and races I went to in the immediate days and months afterwards, you know, you had to be checked, your baggage and everything, your knapsack, uh, for fear of terrorism. We've had very little in the U.S. because we really watch it pretty tough, you know. And um, But it was sadness, you know. It was the sadness. To me, I think about every race I've ever been in and what this spectators at a marathon they're not in a sports stadium having hot dogs brought to their seat they're you know standing out in the rain for six hours mm. clapping for strangers they've never heard of going by right so yeah. those those that that those are the people who were attacked were really hurt. makes me sad yeah it's very true they were they were there their friends and family were running you know that's what makes the boston marathon it makes marathoning a, such a great sport there is this huge connection yeah. Between the participants in the race, you know, and, 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 and their family and friends. It's just powerful. Or anyone, you don't have to have family and friends there. You know, I just went over to see it the first time because I lived in Boston and see this old event, you know. And um, but it, it's never endingly, um, I don't know, it's never endingly something that I think the Boston Marathon, when I go there now, I see all the uh, – the military and the big trucks out there, and they really got to lock down good. And we got to do that, you know, because um, it is an issue and uh, we got to be smart, you know, name of the game. But the spectators are key. I love being a spectator now, though. I'm a retired marathoner. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, when you run, do you read the signs that spectators have? Signs? Um, well, you know, when I was running, it was, you know, it was, my last Boston was 2009. I was running with two of my friends, including my internal medicine doctor and a good friend, Zeus. And he was trying to, he was trying to clear the way for me because I was older. I was 61 years old, you know, and I hadn't run a marathon in 11 years. <laughs> I was coming off, I was coming off of a cancer treatment and everything. So I was a little beat up, but I, um, but they helped me through and um, it was great fun. I mean, I just, that's part of the Boston Marathon. It's a huge part and you can get a feeling for it from TV coverage today you know, which wasn't there so much years ago. It's bigger and bigger. And I think the people who, people who are watching it, they're from around the world, you know, uh, all, all the spectators and, and everything. And it's shown around the world, you know, on NBC Sports uh, World, because it's one of the world marathon majors. There are six world marathon majors, you know, so our sport is, our sport is getting more and more strength, I think. It's, it's only going to get stronger and bigger. There's going to be more people that will be in it. They're not all going to be running marathons, but they'll run they'll run 10Ks, 5Ks. There are national programs, like in England, there's a big program, or the UK, we're, we're a national program for people to get into running through their parks. You know, oh, so you cool. run in some of, 
some of the great parks. So in Boston, we'd run to the commons, you know. When I first moved to Boston, um, I saw in wintertime, they had all the Christmas lights up and holiday lights and everything. And I said, oh, this is phenomenal. It reminded me when I was in high school and I'd do a little run, three mile run through the neighborhood and see the lights. And my brother and I started a Jingle Bell run in 1977 from our store in Cleveland Circle. And I think it was the first one ever done in the country, you know, a Jingle Bell run. But that's what our sport is about. It's really, it's about the good stuff. 99.9% of it is celebration, you know, and yeah. that's, that's, that's what, I, that's what I think of all the time, all the time. So Bill Rogers, your book is marathon man. Yes. Yeah. And in this time of social distancing, if people want to get a copy of that and perhaps even yes. a signed copy of that, where should they look? Yeah. My brother and I started a store in 1977 called the Bill Rogers running center. It's a little online store now. For many years, we were in Cleveland Circle. We even had a store at Faneuil Hall. My brother ran the store for 35 years, you know, and it, it was a resource center for runners. It wasn't just a retail store. That was our year. <clears throat> but my book is about becoming a runner. But that's what my book is, is, is about. And uh, I'm glad to sign it for uh, anybody who would like a signed copy. They should do that through the Bill Rogers Running Center online. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. And we'll include the link in this week's show notes so people will be able thank to find you, Jay. it. Thank you, Nikki, too. <laughs> You're welcome. Bill, thank you so much for doing this today. We really appreciated the conversation. See you on the roads, okay? Absolutely. Yes. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. To learn more about Bill Rogers and the Boston Marathon, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 187. We'll have a link to the Bill Rogers Running Center and a direct link to buy an autographed copy of Marathon Man. We'll also post more information about the Boston Marathon legends we talked about with Bill, including Amby Burfoot, Jeff Galloway, Tarzan Brown, both Johnny's Kellys, and the king of the Boston Marathon, Clarence DeMar. We'll include classic photos from the Boston Marathon courtesy of the BPL including some of the shoes from the 1940s that'll make your feet hurt just looking at them. And we'll link to video of Joan Benoit Samuelson's amazing win in the inaugural 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon. And of course, we'll have a link to information about the unappreciated role of women in the shaping of Puritanism, our upcoming historical event. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 